Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai. Welcome to Q&A. I'm Jack Tame. What happens in just a few months when our population is vaccinated? Australia now has a roadmap for reopening and is changing its long-term strategy for handling COVID-19. Today, we ask, should New Zealand do the same thing? We need to think about how the population understands what is ahead of us. Then, ski operators have snow, but not the Aussie tourists they were hoping for. And they want to see a path to a more certain future. What I'd love to see is a bit of a vision for what coming out of this pandemic looks like to the government. And what's the difference between Labour's Māori co-governance plans and National's Māori co-governance plans? That would be a bottom-up. I think what we see in Hapuapua and from ministers like Willie Jackson is top-down uh, and we don't go along with that. We'll have that interview shortly. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has laid out a roadmap for his country's COVID-19 future. Fundamentally, it's a shift from virus suppression, as they call it in Australia, to virus management. A future where vaccinated people can travel more easily and Australians can quarantine at home, but COVID-19 still exists in pockets in the community. The Singaporean government last week issued a similar plan. So should New Zealand do the same? Sir Peter Gluckman is the chair of the International Network of Government Science Advice and I asked him what he thinks of the Australian framework. Well, I think every country has to reflect on how to get to the point in the future where we can manage this virus in a way that just accepts that, like the flu, it's part of, the, uh, part of our environment. Now, clearly to get there depends entirely on how well populations get vaccinated. That is at the nub of any strategy to get out of either an elimination or a suppression strategy. The Australian roadmap has a framework with four different phases for the future of COVID-19. Is that the right approach? Yes, I think they, Singapore, several countries are now who have taken an approach somewhat similar to New Zealand of saying that they've tried to keep the virus out and now looking ahead to the inevitability that borders cannot stay closed forever, that at some point there'll be sufficient vaccination within their populations that they need to open up and they clearly need to get the populations to understand the implications of either getting vaccinated or not getting vaccinated. So I think this is all part of a gradual process of getting from where we are to, to where we will ultimately inevitably be. You know, it's not been easy, but it's relatively easy to shut the borders of a country like New Zealand or Australia. It's much harder to work through how to open them up. And that's really what by laying out the kinds of things ahead, which the Australians and Singaporeans have done, they, they are actually attuning to the population to two things. One is this virus is not ever going to go away absolutely, and, and therefore, secondly, they should take the vaccine when it's offered. Does New Zealand need a similar plan? Well, it does. At some point, it's, I mean, if we think ahead some unknown number of years, at some point, this will be like measles. We want to have the bulk of the population immune to measles, but there'll still be cases that come in that spread to other children and cause unnecessary harm. And this virus may or may not attenuate, but we're getting better at managing it. I mean, if you look at a country like Singapore, it's had 
60 odd thousand cases, but very few cases have ended up being either hospitalised or sadly dying. And just as some number of people every year uh, unfortunately get ill and may die from influenza, at some point in the indefinite future, that will be true of the coronavirus. We cannot eliminate it from the world or eradicate it because for the simple reason that it's not only in humans, it's also there in animals. Unless we were to do something beyond comprehension, the virus will, it will stay in the global ecosystem at some level, just as the measles virus does. And so therefore, because it also exists in animals, we're gonna have to take the view, we cannot keep it out forever from being in, in our country. Even though we hope it will be like measles or tuberculosis, very occasional cases, and we can manage those clusters when they emerge. And hopefully they will be of relatively benign consequence. However, all of that depends ultimately on vaccination. We need to vaccinate as, as much of the population as we can. At that point, there are strategies, as Australia has indicated, between rapid testing, between perhaps self-isolation and monitoring in different ways, and that can be staged in to start to open New Zealand up to the world. But none of this is possible without two things. One is the population understanding that at some stage we will reopen to the world, and secondly, we can't do that till the bulk of our vulnerable population in particular, if not 100%, close to 100%, are vaccinated. Now, there's no magic number. There is, a, there is a point at which we will find ourselves inevitably having to reflect on the balance of outcomes. The best thing that we can do is make sure we get enough of the mRNA vaccines to vaccinate all the population who want to be vaccinated, and hopefully that will be a number well over 90%. And hopefully the government is reflecting on their strategies to how we make this transition, which has these two components. One is the medical component, the, the, the epidemiological component. The other is the psychological component. We need to think about how the population understands what is ahead of us. What you're saying here is elimination is not sustainable as a strategy. Even with vaccines, there will be COVID-19 in our communities. Is the New Zealand public ready for that message? Well, that's the point. There needs to be discussion over time about the realities of this world. I mean, there's a difficulty here that elimination has a technical meaning to epidemiologists, and which does allow for the reality that elimination does not mean the lot, absolutely no disease in the country. It's talking about a low episodic occasional incursion. Now, we have to handle it as we have been doing because we have a low vaccination rate. We have a low, we're not using some of the other techniques which could help use it. We're not using rapid testing rapid, uh, broadly in the community and so forth. But at the end of the day, vaccination, particularly we're lucky and that we wisely chose the mRNA vaccine, because at least for all the variants we know of now, the mRNA vaccines are universally effective against them, very effective against them. It doesn't mean that we won't have occasional cases. And sadly, there will be people that choose not to get immunised who are vulnerable. 
and they will remain vulnerable even if there is herd immunity, so-called herd immunity out there, because even with that, there could be a case come in and expose, and a vulnerable person could be exposed to them. So it's in everybody's interest to get vaccinated, and it's in the national interest that the government, and I'm sure it's trying its best, and it's no use looking backwards. We can only look forward. The sooner we get everybody offered a vaccine, the better off we will be able to move to do it. But the point you, of your question is very wise. We do need to start the conversation of the moves ahead, which will allow a change in the way we act, because the population at the moment is not necessarily understanding the nuances around what elimination means, and therefore the fact that at some point when the border opens, we will still have occasional cases coming in, whatever precautions we put in place. Australia has the four-phase plan. Should our plan be similar to Australia's? Well, I'm not sure we have many choices. I mean, the trans-Tasman bubble is very important to both countries. It's very important to our business sector and our tourist sector and to many people who have family on either side of the Tasman. So if we move in different directions too far from Australia, the bubble becomes compromised. So if Australia starts to do things that New Zealand is not comfortable with or vice versa, the ability to trans-Tasman travel will be compromised. Therefore, we have to look at what the Australians are doing. I think the experiment that's proposed in South Australia of shorter quarantine for immunised people is a clever decision, a, a, a bit of data that is a, will be very valuable for our own decision-making. But, you know, all of this is about balancing risk and opportunity. And I keep saying risk is reduced the more we vaccinate. And, you know, if government can accelerate vaccination in any which way, that is desirable. It will make those decisions much easier for it. And what do you make of the vaccine rollout? Well, I think there's two things. One is I actually think with the benefit of hindsight, the government made the right decision to go with Pfizer. I think that was a, a, a very insightful decision and the right decision to make. The, it's quite clear the mRNA vaccines have some advantages. Secondly, I think that clearly because that decision was made early in response to the information we had, because it was all new, but late in response to ordering of vaccines, uh, we've ended up in the situation we're in now. It is where we are. I, I, I think that you can, people will criticise anything that's new and complicated, and it is complicated. And I'm sure with hindsight, everybody could see ways to improve it. I'm not very worried about that. The issue is now, how do we move as quickly as possible? The government tells us that the vaccine is coming in the next few months in significant supplies to vaccinate everybody. Let's get on and make sure all those people, and I'm particularly worried about those who are most vulnerable, people, Maori, Pacifica, people that have got type 2 diabetes and other comorbidities, we need to make sure those people are uh, vaccinated. The earlier it's done, the more likely it is that the government can move to, to, to at least start the early steps of opening the borders uh, in some ways, at least to people who have been vaccinated against with the mRNA virus, the vaccines. 
That is Sir Peter Gluckman. Now, the government is being advised on future moves by Sir David Skegg's expert group. And a spokesperson for the Prime Minister told us no decisions on our strategy have been made yet. They will be based on the best scientific advice. Still, some New Zealand businesses are growing increasingly anxious to see an Australian-style plan for what will happen when more of us have been vaccinated. One of those is New Zealand Ski, which operates Coronet Peak, The Remarkables and Mount Hutt. With the COVID-19 outbreak in Australia, the company estimates this week they've lost between two and 3,000 Aussie visitors a day. Well, we, I mean, we're, we're gutted by what's happened. Um, we had, we were waiting with bated breath for what we thought was going to be a relatively normal season, but like most businesses operating in the, in the tourism sector, we, we have contingency plans and we knew that the possibility was there that we would lose that uh, freedom of travel between Australia and New Zealand. So, you know, understandable from a health perspective. It's paramount that we protect the health and safety of uh, New Zealanders, but, you know, we're gutted for our business and, our, and for our community. Of course, these would have been the first Australian school holidays in which Australians were able to visit New Zealand ski fields since the beginning of this pandemic. How important are Australian visitors to your business? Yeah, it's a huge part of our market. Um, the Australians make up about between 30 and 40 per cent of our visitation and about 40 per cent of our revenue. But I guess if I'm going to look at it in a positive way, I, I think it's more important for me to have 60 per cent of my revenue, that's domestic revenue, rather than 100 per cent and risk another border closure. From a business perspective, how do you rate the vaccine rollout in New Zealand? Yeah, it, it's been slow and, you know, the, the sentiment I'm hearing in Queenstown is an increasing level of frustration that we're not hearing when it's going to happen. Um, you, you hear some very high-level commentary uh, in the media, but, you know, for me, that's the only thing that's really going to get us back to normal and get us back to living the lifestyles that we value. It is hard to accept New Zealand being pretty much the bottom of uh, the developed countries in the, in the tables that I've looked at. I think we're sitting at about 11.7% 11, 11 as of the 30th of June. Um, even our mates over the Tasman are at 15%, uh, and you've got much bigger countries like USA and UK at 50 and 60% vaccination rates. So I think we really need to compare ourselves to the countries where you know, we, we aspire to or we, we want to trade with and um, you know, to just get an absolute move on with it. And you said the communication, you feel, has not been as clear as it could have been. Yeah, you know, what, what I'd love to see is a bit of a vision for what coming out of this pandemic looks like to the government, because if we get that clarity, um, then businesses can come in behind and plan and play their part in the recovery as well. But with a really high level of uncertainty, that, that's tough for business to, to plan and employ staff and prepare for the future. Last year, I know your revenues were down about 40% without Australian visitors, but not having the Australians there won't just affect your business, it'll affect many businesses in Queenstown. Is this a similar sentiment that you are hearing from other business operators in your region? Yeah, for sure. I was talking to um, the, the place I, I buy my lunch in town yesterday, and the woman who runs that was saying, I was saying, oh, you've got a pretty local clientele, haven't you? So maybe you're not as impacted. But she said, well, there's a lot of tourism businesses with less staff, and they're the people who go and spend the money in those businesses. So there's both the direct spend from tourists mm. and the indirect spend from the workers in the tourism industry that are hurting this town. To be clear, would a faster vaccine rollout actually have helped Australians be here at the moment? 
I don't think we'd be up at herd immunity. You know, that, that's, the, that's where we need to get to. So the faster we get the vaccine rollout going, the quicker we get to herd immunity. I think it would have been unreasonable to expect that by now. But maybe, you know, every month counts in getting to that herd immunity level where we can have more freedom of travel and we can get Kiwis and Australians back to doing what they love doing. How have you found the process trying to bring in foreign workers to work on New Zealand ski fields? It's been really inconsistent from our perspective. In some respects, it's been very good. In other respects, it's been, uh, it's been terrible. We worked as an industry, and, you know, that's one of the silver linings that's come out of COVID to our, for us, is that we've worked together with other industry players and developed a sustainable workforce strategy before this season, in fact, um, over last summer. And the reason we did that was we wanted to demonstrate that we're committed to employing Kiwis and we're committed to training our workers. We've got big training programs on all the major ski operators in New Zealand. So when we came to applying for exemptions, um, critical worker visas, uh, we, there were two main kinds we were after. One was snow sports instructors, and the process for that was really good. So we had quick responses, and we've employed 11 high-end snow sports instructors to come in and help run our training program so we can bring young Kiwis through and teach them how to be a snow sports instructor. Conversely, the other main skill we needed to bring in were groomer operators. We employ about 24 groomer operators across our three ski areas, and we need a mix of experience and rookies. We want to train people coming through, mm. but we need experience to be able to train them. And that was something that it was really tough to get Immigration New Zealand to approve. We've recently had approval for two, but we've started the season. So, you know, we're not going to get these guys until, um, you know, two months into the season, and the season's only four months long. So it's, it's a big investment for us to bring them in. Um, we'll still do it if we can. How long would that have taken then from the time you made that application, the Immigration New Zealand, to the approval? It would have been four or five months. So we had to make sure we had advertised and we'd exhausted all the avenues in New Zealand, which we always do because we prefer to employ Kiwis. Um, it, it's far easier and less administrative burden on us to do so. But we need to accept that. The, these are the kind of people that are at the top of their game. Um, there's only snow on the, on the ground here for four months of the year, so they need to go to the Northern Hemisphere to, to learn their craft, to, to perfect their craft. And, uh, you know, we, we advertised and then uh, went through a very long process. Mm. Uh, got two declines um, before we got our two uh, approvals. It's been a mixed week then. You've had 60 centimetres of snow at Remarkables, 20 centimetres at Coronet. <laughs> Mount Hutt has a good base at the moment, but you don't have those thousands of Australians coming over here in the school holidays. What do you need, Paul, from this point forth to have a successful ski season? Well, look, we, we, need, we need tight borders and we need to keep COVID out, right? So until we get the vaccination rollout really ramped up, which was the, is the other thing I'd love to see. So, you know, that's what it is in the short term. We will operate quite happily on a domestic season. We would love to see the Aussies in here, both for ourselves and for our community. In the longer term, as I said, it would be great to see a bit more vision from the government about how they feel that will come out of this pandemic and what they're going to do to bring us out. Because with that certainty, we can actually start to plan and business can play their part in helping New Zealand with its recovery. That is Paul Anderson, the CEO of New Zealand Ski.
After the break, a future of no lockdowns and at-home quarantine. We'll ask our panellists for their thoughts on Australia's major change in strategy in dealing with COVID-19. The third phase is called the consolidation phase, and that is to manage COVID-19 consistent with public health management of other infectious diseases. So when it is like the flu, we should treat it like the flu. No lockdowns, um, the vaccine booster program underway, exempting vaccinated residents from all domestic restrictions. That was Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison explaining his new COVID-19 strategy. I'll bring in our panel now. Auckland University politics lecturer Lara Greaves and lawyer, former ministerial advisor and National Party member Bridget Morton. Kia ora, kōrua. Whatever. Right, this is a significant step, at least I think it is, a significant step in moving from Australia's current strategy to a strategy where they are managing COVID-19 in the future. We don't have a lot of detail in terms of dates, but it is a significant shift. Lara, should New Zealand do the same thing? Yeah, it was, it's been clear that it's coming at some point, that we'd have to, we couldn't just stay the sort of hermit state North Korea style of the corner of the world, right, that we'd have to open up. I think this is going to be really challenging for the government because we kind of, we're going to have to follow Australia to a certain extent because that's people's closest comparator. And if suddenly that sort of travel bubble right is taken away for people to visit Fano over there and like do business, mm. people are going to feel hard done by. So that's going to be quite hard. We're going to have to follow that along. There's also the potential there um, with comparing vaccine rates across country for people to kind of look at Australia and go, well, I haven't had my vaccine yet, but such and such in Australia has as well. So because that's such our immediate comparison, I, th I think psychologically that's going to be quite hard for New Zealanders. Yeah, and Singapore issued a similar plan, a similar change in strategy last week, Bridget. Should New Zealand do the same? Yeah, absolutely. But I think what we need is an actual plan, a delivery plan. You know, I think we were behind Australia in the vaccine plan you know they came out with exactly who would be vaccined when and you know in what sort of groups months before the New Zealand government did and I think the danger here is that the New Zealand government will rush into putting out some sort of spin plan but we know that actually delivery wise they're going to actually really have to really think about what all the mechanics are. And there are so many unknowns this is the problem right we are seeing the Delta variant spread so quickly and you can understand why the government wants to have the very best information it can possibly get its hands on when it comes to actually working out the sort of restrictions we will have in place once we're vaccinated. Yeah, look, I think our COVID modelers are excellent. I think they're world class. I think there's some wonderful epidemiological research coming out of New Zealand, and I think they're doing a great job. But I think one of the things that needs to be front and centre of any of these discussions is that equity lens, is that treaty lens, because a lot of that work is showing that we need to have proportionately more of the Māori mm. population and Pacific populations vaccinated in order to get to that sort of safer level. I think an issue there, of course, that we need to think about in all of this is that a lot of Māori and Pacific, in terms of the population structure, are younger yeah. and so therefore those older age groups need to get to that higher level for that population to be safe and I think that needs to be like all due respect to Sir Peter Gluckman and others that needs to be front and centre in these debates and I think it also speaks to the need for you know under sort of a treaty partnership mm. model to have Māori chief science advisors and all of those ministries alongside that sort of toe we want. Well this is it he, uh, like Sir Peter Gluckman said there is no magical number and I know that the Australians haven't actually decided on a number yet but basically their plan is that once Every adult Australian has had access to a vaccine and once they reach a certain percentage of people being vaccinated in the country with two doses, that's when they will move. 
Do you think that's the same way we should approach it, Bridget? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, Lara's point is absolutely right that we need consistency across Australia and New Zealand. You know, we believe that we are mm. separate countries, but ultimately we have such strong connections that we do have to be moving on the same path. I would say that also we need to think economically as well. You know, it's been, I think, a year now of sort of living with this sort of COVID framework. And a lot of people, you know, thought it was like a dirty word to talk about the economic mm. impact of COVID and it should be just pure health. But actually, the reality we know is that we're not going to actually have a country that is moving forward and is, you know, centred in wellbeing if we do not look at that economic question as well. Yeah, yeah. it was interesting to hear Paul Anderson from New Zealand Ski there, just, just wanting more clarity about how we might move forward once New Zealanders are vaccinated. And this is the thing, if the government can ramp up vaccinations as it expects to do over the second half of this year, we are in the second half of 2021, then we're going to be facing these questions very soon. Yeah. I think study after study shows as well, and this is the election study, Vote Compass, all of them show that the top three issues for New Zealanders last year and probably this year as well are always health and the economy, but this time COVID as well. And so I think we need to always keep that in mind when we're starting to talk about hate speech and starting to talk about mm. Māori relations, all of that stuff, that we need to be thinking about, like, actually for most people, those are the three sort of bread and butter issues that need to be covered off by what, political parties. What role does fear play in this? I think it plays a, a big part. And I see it across in Australia, you know, ScoMo came out with his vaccination sort of plan earlier in the week following a national cabinet. And you had in Queensland, the Queensland Premier actually running a little bit of a scare campaign around anti-vax. And I think that's what is really concerning. It demonstrates that although we have all this information, that we have all of this, you know, discussion and people are getting a lot of information through advertising things, there's still people out there that are hesitant. I know people that are still hesitant that don't see that they need to take it now, maybe when they travel. And for how do we cut through that? So I think fear does play a big part in this. But the, the problem is that even once we are vaccinated, there is still going to be risk. I mean, there are people who have been vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine, which is proven to be safe and highly effective, who are still contracting coronavirus. Yeah, I think the communication here is going to be really key because I think for a lot of New Zealanders as well, there's, there's going to be pockets of people, right, thinking different things. But for a lot of New Zealanders, mm. this idea that, oh, once we're vaccinated, life goes back to normal, but actually we need to be thinking about what that new normal is going to be and that staggered approach. Whenever we've seen like Bloomfield come out and say, well, we need like a level 1.5 longer term and it's going to be a three to five year plan and all that kind of thing. People have, people's reactions to that, from what I've seen, has been kind of a little confused, almost as if we hit to this point. We're, oh, we're vaccinated, we're good. But it's actually, realistically, a lot of this modelling and a lot of this work coming out is actually mm. showing that we're just going to potentially have to live with COVID. And I don't know how that looks in terms of fear in, a, in an environment where we've all done so well, team of five million, we've eliminated COVID. And now you're asking people, some of which are going to be terrified of COVID itself as well, you're asking people to now turn around and live with COVID, that's going to be quite a challenge in terms of communication for the government. In a sense, we are victims of our own success. All right, send us your thoughts. <laughs> We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us qna at tvnz.co.nz. Our panel will be back shortly. But after the break, just how united is Nationals Caucus? That's ultimately mostly for him, uh, and, and I certainly wish him well for the future. It's not effusive support. Welcome back to Q&A. Māori leaders first, then everyone's welcome. That's the consultation plan for He Puapua. The report has become a political football this year. Of course, it outlined a range of possible ways the government could action ideas from the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Māori Development Minister Willie Jackson pulled out of our show this week, but National Spokesperson Simon Bridges agreed to be interviewed. 
I began by asking him if it was a mistake for the former national government to sign up to the UN declaration in the first place. No, I mean, in the end, you, you know the story. I mean, we could be, we could be cute about this, but it's Peter Sharples and the Maori Party. But in the end, uh, any government has complete discretion, it seems to me, about how you implement an international treaty. So for the current Labor government to be saying, oh, well, look, it's because of that, uh, to me, that's a fig leaf of an excuse. How they implement this, what they do, uh, is up to them, and actually what they want to do, because it seems to me a lot of what is in Hipupua are things that many ministers in the government do want to do. OK, what would you have done? What would the national government have done? How would you have implemented? Well, I think you've got a sense of that from our track record, but let, let me tell you here, I think it's about um, uh, targeted programmes that are needs-based and that are practical. And whether that's charter schools, whether that's actually going a long way back to Hungareo, whether it's um, whānau ora. Uh, but I think what we see here that is so concerning, both in the document Hipupua, but also from the ministers, is a sense that the treaty uh, is obviously fundamental. Check, agree with that, that that means partnership, I agree with that, but somehow that is 50-50 co-governance across systems and that's where I think, you know, not just the National Party but many New Zealanders uh, are concerned because ultimately it's, it's inconsistent with a, a multicultural, modern, liberal democracy. Here, pua pua is not the plan. That is the quote from the Māori Development Minister, <laughs> Willie Jackson. Here, pua pua is not the plan. I mean, that's, that's pretty clear. Do you I, accept the idea? I mean, I'm, I'm smiling, but I, but I think what is in the end true about his various statements uh, on Thursday of this week gone um, is that it's a very confused picture that he's painted. Uh, it's not the plan, um, you know, this is nothing to worry about, but then on the other side of it, look, let's see how it goes over the next couple of years. M my sense is what you've had from Willie Jackson is a bit of a talking to, I don't know whether the Prime Minister or who it is, that's essentially said all the horses, but you know, some of this is going to continue. My worry when I think about Willie, I like him, I get along with him well, um, uh, other ministers, is there is something a bit religious about this, a sense that um, if we haven't said Aotearoa 18 times uh, by lunchtime, if we haven't um, uh, referenced the treaty and tried to do some things in that area, look, we'll have to go home in the evening and say a few Hail Marys because we haven't got the job done. Just to be clear, do you, do you accept at the moment that He Pua Pua is not government policy? Uh, yes, okay. but I also, but I think it's really, let's be clear here, but what is also true is the ethos behind it is driving certainly some of the ministers in government, and that's why we have separate Maori wards, that's why we have a Maori health authority, uh, that's why there are in a bunch of other areas governance arrangements okay. being You're set up. You're talking about co-governance here, so I'll, I'll go to your party leader's comments on Thursday. We will not support a system of co-government uh, of co-governance that undermines our democracy and treats people differently based on ethnicity. Co-governance is the word de jour, the kupu o te ra. Um, what about whānau water? You introduced that. That's a system of co-governance. Ultimately, it seems to me that whānau ora, or as I say, charter schools, or a bunch of other examples, uh, they were at a level, uh, they were needs-based, they were practical about working. And, and let's, let's be so, clear... So, so do Māori not need additional help in, in health sector or uh, the justice of sector? Of course. And let's be right. clear that National accepts that we must right wrongs from the past. We've been right. fully, In fact, we've led the treaty settlement process. Let's also be clear, we understand that there are significant disparities, whether it's in health uh, or crime. But I come back to it. The, the answer is targeted programmes that are practical and needs-based. So, so, not so system-wide change at the top, which is a constitutional discussion. New Zealanders, so, not just so Māori in the Crown, should be So how is a Maori Health Authority not a targeted approach? Uh, quite simply this. 
Uh, if we think about that, and as a Maori man, I will have, it seems to me, and I appreciate this as we'll see the detail, I have the opportunity to walk through uh, one door and you will have to walk through as a Pākehā man uh, another door. Okay, so as, as, a, as, a Pākehā, me, as a Pākehā man, do I qualify for final water assistance at the moment? Um, my understanding is that you would. Uh, I don't know the current settings. Particularly, my, my understanding is you would. And that was always the position is under targeted us. targeted funding for me, Whānau Ora? Well, Whānau Ora, charter schools, these are choice-based systems. They, they are not ones that come in top-down where we say, right, okay. on this board, 50% Māori, 50% everyone else. And, and I just say, you yeah, actually, uh, okay. we yeah. live in a country that, that is multicultural today. Absolutely. That is... That is, that is uh, uh, Equal citizenship, that is a liberal democracy. Okay. As, I don't know if that's a, the path As a Pākehā person, do I have any, any uh, degree of governance representation over Te Uruwera? Uh, no. So, I mean, the, the national government no. reached a treaty settlement with Tuhoi, giving them governance over Te Uruwera. It was a historical settlement. It was discreet. It wasn't something we did over Aotearoa. Discreet. New Zealand. Yes, discreet. It's in relation to an area that's uh, incredibly beautiful, uh, that is remote, and we put in place things there. Ultimately, these things are sometimes a question of degree, but I am saying to you today that when you've got hapuapua, when you've got ministers that are somewhat religious about this stuff, to have a setup that means 50-50 across systems and health, education, that's not what uh, local we, government... Where have they said anywhere that that is government policy? No, no, you're right, but let's look at what Willie Jackson no, said. No, hang on, no, no. I mean, if, if that is your criticism, that they want a 50% governance across every major sector in New Zealand society and governance, where have they said it? My proposition is that is the ethos. Actually, Willie Jackson... No, 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 let you're me You're giving finish. me the dinosaur argument right now. You're giving me you, this is the vibe I, No, argument. no, no, I'm not. I will give you specific examples. Actually, when he was asked about it in Parliament just a month ago, Willie Jackson said, yep, we signed up for Hapuapu and we're taking this uh, to Cabinet. Now, he's obviously been rumbled somewhere along the way. And so there's these seething words, look, this isn't the plan, the bit the media picked up. But he's also made quite clear, hey, let's actually, with a wink and a nod, see how this goes over the next couple of years. We're going out consulting. And, and what we've already seen, whether it's Maori Health uh, Authority, whether it's Maori Wards, is they are walking down this path, whether they say it explicitly, uh, or with a, nink, a wink and a, nod, a nudge, uh, do some of but, it. But my point is that is that the National Party was also walking down this path. I mean, you reached that historical agreement with Tuhoi. You've overseen the development of rangatahi courts, for example. You introduced Fana order. So, so when it suits, the National Government has been all about co-governance and co-governance structures, but now that you're in opposition, you I say think, it goes too I far. think there is two distinctions. I think firstly, uh, much of what you say, if you take the Uruwea, for example, we are talking about historic uh, rather than prospective system-wide changes. I think the other thing is very much uh, in the detail of these things, we were about um, uh, targeted, needs-based, practical things on the ground that worked. Um, I, I see this as much more of a top-down co-governance approach uh, that we, and I think many New Zealanders, would be concerned Explain about. Explain that difference to me. Explain the difference between Fano Ora and a Māori health authority. Well, I, I think it's pretty simple. Fano Ora is incremental, it's iterative, uh, it is needs-based, and but, that but is the but position. But I mean, this is, so, so do you, I mean... No, no, how, the how, Māori I mean, Health that, Authority, yeah. as, I, as I understand it, is fundamentally, as Andrew Little has said it, is going to be a top-down, there is this door for Māori, and there is this door... But it's an option. Door for non-Māori. No, 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 it's an option. 
I, I would suggest it's an option I will have uh, between those two de doors. It won't be one uh, for you. And, and it's not, as I say, it's not a, it's not a targeted programme. This is something at the very top of but health, yeah. where there will be but two we know systems. That, we know that That's Māori are, are grossly overrepresented in negative health stats at the moment. So let's have better health care. Let's build houses. Let's do the practical things on the ground uh, that work. Let's not mm. have uh, an ethos that ultimately interprets the Treaty of Waitangi as about being co-governance across systems of government. I, I think really what I'm saying to you, Jack, mm. and the New Zealanders, the National Party believes that's a, that's a step, that is a bridge too far for, for actually Māori and Pākehā. So, so let me ask this. Do you think the current system works for Māori? In which area? Health and justice. Of course, in terms of the statistics, no. But let's deal with that. Let's not come at this with the, the ideology that we see in Hapuapua. I think it goes against really what uh, democracies in the West have, have valued for a long time, as I say, equal citizenship, uh, pluralism, but the point liberal is, democracy. The point is that it isn't equal at the moment. If it were equal, then Māori wouldn't make up 52% of our prison population. If it were equal, then Māori wouldn't die on average several years earlier than someone like and, me. And my point is... Um, deal with those statistics in a needs-based, targeted, practical way. Like a Māori health Don't authority. <laughs> well, no, but you, I, I think you're belittling that the, the size and the systemic nature of, of what that change uh, is, as it's been described by the, the, the government. Mm. And, and that's what we, uh, the National Party, as I say, I actually think most New Zealanders, when they think about it, what wouldn't like. What do you think tino rangatiratanga means? How do you interpret that phrase? Well, I interpret it in a positive self-determination sense. It's actually very much in line with the values of the National Party, mm. right? Um, um, uh, getting up, having the autonomy and the ability, uh, free from constraints, to do things for yourself. So and I that includes as uh, hapu and iwi. And that's why when we think mm. about historic treaty settlements in my own iwi right now, Ngāti Mini Poto is going through, I hope, well down the track mm. uh, in this part, to, to, to get some recompense and to be able to do that uh, mm. off our own steam. Uh, th that, though, as I say, is quite different than this 50-50 partnership uh, arrangement. You just said, that doesn't you said apply self determination. To... I mean, I mean, surely that would be rep the way to action that in a modern context is through some form of co-governance. No, because my, my conception of that would be enablement. That would be a bottom up. I think what we see in Hapuapua and from ministers like Willie Jackson is top down, uh, and we don't go along with that. Do you think the National Party has a coherent strategy when it comes to the relationship between Crown and Māori? Yes, I do. Uh, I think you saw that in government. But let's be clear, it's, it's more practical than it is based on some big ideological driver of an endpoint or something. I mean, I can give you an endpoint. I actually think what we want is a country which uh, recognises uh, our bicultural uh, foundations and heritage and the special place of Māori because of that, but is also a modern, multicultural, liberal mm. democracy that's more focused on the future uh, than, than the past. But I think fundamentally the National Party is a, a practical party uh, rather than one that's uh, trying to throw around uh, ideologies or philosophies about these things. Let me ask about the party. Another interesting week. Um, is the National Caucus in a stronger position today than it was immediately after the election last year? I think in the end, we're in a process. And I don't mean to be sort of clever or anything about that. What's happened is actually quite simple. We had a COVID election 
the troops rallied around Sergeant Major Jacinda Ardern. Uh, the National Party didn't do itself any favours, and I'm not going to shy away from that. I'm not suggesting that somehow it's got things perfect far, far from it. But what, as a result of that election, people aren't going to wake up tomorrow and say, you know what, oh, we stuffed up, we shouldn't have voted Labor. This is a thing that takes time, mm. and there are many issues for us to get into, whether it's hate speech, whether it's what we've been talking about, mm. whether it's mental health. But to that, to and that so question, the task though, is ahead for us, and I should think, come 2023, National will be competitive. Is, back to my question, though, do you think it's in a better position today, the caucus, than it was immediately after the election? Well, it's, I think it's a process, I think it's a journey. I don't, I'm not going to sort of sit here and say, oh, well, it's... it's, it's it's now seven out of ten. It was four out of ten. Ah, or just, uh, is it better or worse? I mean, it's pretty simple. But my point to you is, we're on a journey. I think it's explainable. Mm. I think we'll be competitive in 2023. Do you think that? Do you think the caucus? I'm not suggesting necessarily you would be prime minister or anything like that. But do you think the caucus would be in a better position? If you hadn't been rolled as leader last year, if you were still in that, in that well, position. it's a bit like everything we've talked about. The past is the past. I'm focused on the future. I support Judith Collins. I you, think she's secure yeah. in her leadership, uh, and and actually we've got good issues to get on with. I think there are a lot of things where the government actually should be held to account, and we've got to get on. I think the message to the caucus is get on and do that rather than being a bit inwards focused. It's not a question, not not time. a question of Judith Collins though. It's just a question of that that tumultuous period the last 12 months or so, do you think that overall the party would be in a stronger, more united position if you actually, the caucus had decided to stick with you? I'm not going to go there. I, I accept, though, what you say. It has been somewhat tumultuous. You know what, though? Well, we've got to pick ourselves up. Mm. New Zealanders deserve that. And there's plenty of issues where actually I think um, we've got the opportunity to do that on. Should Todd Muller hang around till the next election? In the end, uh, that that'll be for him, I think. And uh, you know, I, I, I personally. Just up the road from you. You must, you must, you must have a view on that. I, I personally wish him well. Um, I think what I can say is um, politics can be tough. On a family, it's long hours, it's a lot of time away. Uh, he's made his decision. He's going to retire at the next election. Mm. Look, I wish him and his family well. Is it in the interest of the party for him to hang around? I think, you know, these are things ultimately for, for, a, for a leader to think about and for Todd Muller to think about. Oh, you're a um, former leader, so you, I'm sure you've got a position. Emphasis on the former. And, um, you know, I, I think I've said what I said. I, that's ultimately mostly for him. Uh, and, and I certainly wish him well for the future. It's not effusive support. Who do you think will be the next Prime Minister in New Zealand? Judith Collins. That is Simon Bridges. After the break, we're back to discuss Hepuapua and the National Party with our panel. Kia ora koutou, welcome back to Q&A and welcome back to our panel, Lara Greaves and Bridget Morton. Um, let's talk about Hepuapua. One of the main criticisms to come from the opposition and ACT this week was that the government shouldn't be consulting iwi before it consults the general public regarding he puapua. What do you think of that, Lara? Well, I think that this kind of speaks to the sort of different factions of the national right, and that was a really interesting interview from Bridges because I think he's speaking to his sort of social conservative side. So you've got the social conservatives, you've got the populists, you've got somewhere in there somehow the farmers, you've got the urban liberals, you've got the centrists, they've all got to fit together. And all of those groups you can see how they would come at it from a different direction, mm. come at her poor poor from a different direction. I found Bridges' wording on that particularly interesting. I'm thinking about yeah, positive ways to empower Māori communities is quite important in that. I think ultimately though, when we look at something like the, this is hot off the press, 
to the New Zealand mm. election study, we see around half of Māori don't consider treaty settlements to be full and final settlement, settlements, and that's a representative sample of Māori. So I don't know where you go there, right? And I think the best thing there is to ask Māori. And I think that's what the government is setting about doing, and that's what mm. Kepoopoo was. But ultimately, I think that National have been trying to spin in a certain way, and I don't think that's necessarily landing as well as they think it could have. Is Hipuapua deserving of the controversy and attention it has attracted this year, Bridget? The government has created this controversy. It is completely at their hands that the fact that there is so much confusion and um, controversy around this report. They put it in a drawer, and then when somebody you know, actually got it out, they couldn't give a coherent line on actually what they thought and where they were going. And going to you know consultation with Māori before anyone else, I think is completely disingenuous if you're going to talk about co-governance. Shouldn't you be having the conversation with everyone at the same time? In different ways, of course, but having that conversation would actually signal to everyone that this is a conversation we should be having on a national level rather than for a particular group. Except that they are the ones affected, right? This is a declaration on the rights of Indigenous people. And we tried that. We tried the constitutional conversation. I think it was about, back about 2013 and we had that discussion. And ultimately what ends up happening mm. whenever we have these discussions is, and this is true within Māori as well, is that the people who are the biggest participators, they get involved and they submit on things and they get into it mm. and they get into it and they, their opinions are sort of triply, quadruply weighted and most of the population are not brought along. And I feel like the sort of announcement and the sort of new, new curriculum in schools mm. was meant to bring more of the population along because this is again not one of those plans for like next year or mm. the next time they're in government it's like one of those things where like I think about all the time especially for you know my students and, and myself like what is Aotearoa going to look like in 2040 or 2050 mm. or whatever what is that going to look like and how will we how will we look as a nation then? Uh, I see ACT today has called for all political parties to ditch the UN declaration. Of course, it was National that signed up to the declaration in 2010, although Simon Bridges sort of swept that aside and said, oh, I was the Māori Party today. Do you think the National Party has a coherent message when it comes to these kind of issues, when it you know, comes to Crown iwi relations? I think it's really complex, and one of the things you don't get in opposition is the chance to have complex conversations, because mm. you're generally reacting. It is on the government to lead those complex conversations, and I come back to the fact that if we actually want real change, and if they are genuine about having real change, they've got to bring everyone along with them. And you can see that one of the things that the government did was that they were so concerned about how Hepuapua would be reacted upon that they kind of tried to dance around it, because they know for most of middle New Zealand, going back to Lara's much earlier point, they're caring about COVID and health and the economy at the moment. Mm. This is not a conversation that they want to have, and they see it as distracting from the main topics. So I think the opposition is doing the right thing, is it that they're shining a light on these issues, but it's not for them to manage the conversation. Okay, let's talk about National. Another um, interesting week, some extraordinary comments from Chris Finlayson regarding the party caucus at the moment. What did you think of Simon Bridges' comments in that interview? Yeah, so again, like I say, I think that National, there's a whole bunch of different pockets existing within National. Both National and Labour, Labour have been broad churches over time, right, and had huge numbers of people from different mm. backgrounds existing within them. And I think that at the moment, all of those sort of factions, it's they have to somehow get together and come up with some kind of coherent identity. Mm. I think in terms of Māori issues, like Bridges, that was a lot stronger mm. as, as a piece. But I think that ultimately, National need to take this time to figure out who they are as a party, right? And there's a classic question in political science. Does the opposition win the election or does the government lose the election? And right now, neither of those things are happening. So they just kind of need to take that time. We're just in a cycle, right? They just need to figure it out. What about the, <laughs> the Todd Muller question? What about the old... 
uh, uh. <laughs> what do you think, Richard? Well, I think, you know, for many people, they're sick of, you know, all this leaking and they are wanting the unity. So therefore, nobody's going to come out and say it was the right thing for Todd to do, to go and mm. speak, you know, background on the incoming MP. So I can see why he, you know, is not supportive. And I think Todd has a responsibility to make sure that the person that's recruited into his safe seat is someone that is going to take the party forward. Mm. So I can see why they're not, you know, coming out now and saying exactly when he, you know, he's saying he's going to try at the election. I would say if there was a good candidate that came up and that could run through, you know, that pre-selection process, that that would be something they would look at. And what would be your advice uh, to members of the caucus watching this program this morning? <laughs> Well, I think, you know, it's the John Key advice, you know, if you want to leak, leave the party. I think everyone is on board with that. And it's somewhat shocking, I think, to most people that that is still occurring and people still think that that's, you know, is somehow going to be for the benefit of the party for that to happen. I think also we need to be really careful, though, that you know, often media and you know, political scientists overemphasise the factions that mm. are in, in the caucus. But actually, it's a relatively small group of people that are in Parliament full stop. And in New Zealand, you actually don't have the chance to be in the factions mm. like we see in the US and Australia. So they're actually having to work together on those base values. This is not about political views. I think this is actually about personalities. All right. Lara Greaves and Bridget Morton. Tina Kōrua, thank you for your time. After the break, Fiji faces a growing health crisis as the COVID-19 outbreak continues to grow. We're with the Kiwi medical team on the ground. Kia ora, welcome back. Fiji's COVID-19 outbreak continues to worsen, with 386 new cases and two deaths recorded in just the last 24 hours. Australia has sent a group of eight medical professionals to aid in the response, including two Kiwi doctors. One of those on the ground is Dr Wayne Morris, who is with us now live from Suva. Kia ora, Wayne, thank you for being with us. Can you just give us your impressions from being on the ground in the last couple of days? Well, bullet of an arca, Jack. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, look, it, it feels like a, a, a community under siege. Uh, we're currently in Suva, and uh, this is the worst hit area of Fiji. Uh, the people, I think, are generally very worried about this outbreak and they're worried that they'll get sick and just wandering around suva people seem to be following the the general guidelines so there's lots of social distancing everybody's wearing masks and people seem to be taking this very seriously do you get a from, sense from a health point of view oh sorry no please no from a health point of view uh the situation is really difficult uh looking at the the medical facilities the main, the main hospital up the road is the Colonial War Memorial Hospital, and this is the main hospital for Suva, and it does some of the tertiary treatments for the whole country. That was effectively closed down to non-COVID patients at the beginning of June. And uh, what has happened since then is that the Fiji Emergency Medical Assistance Team has set up a field hospital in a part of town called Suva Point, and that's in the Vodafone Arena. What are, you, what are you and your team able to do to help? So the team, the, we're calling it the Australian and New Zealand Medical Assistance Team. We're here at the invitation of the Fijian government and they've given us quite specific tasks. The first thing is to look at the capacity and the uh, systems at the Colonial War Memorial Hospital, CWM. We're also being tasked to support the FEMAT, which is the facility down at Suva Point. We're being asked to help with infection prevention and control procedures, 
And finally, there's a public health component. So the other member of the team is Dr. Naomi Goff, who's an officer in the New Zealand Defence Force, and she has public health expertise. What do you think is likely to happen with infection rates in the coming days? We've seen some modelling, and of course these modellings are just modelling, this sort of modelling is really just an educated guess, but we are expecting case numbers to increase. We're also expecting that there will be more severely ill and critically ill patients admitted to hospital, and inevitably there'll be more deaths. So obviously the health authorities here are very concerned, and we're also very concerned on the ground. Wayne, what's it like? Going from New Zealand, where we are fortunate enough not to have COVID-19 in our community, to a place like Fiji, where there are almost 400 new infections a day. It's actually been quite confronting. Uh, we're, we're certainly taking our own uh, uh, infection prevention procedures very seriously. We're using PPE as required, so that's personal protective equipment, so gowns, masks, gloves and eye protection. And it's just, I think, seeing the, the worry in the community and knowing that getting infected can have real consequences, and those consequences could be serious illness or death. Are you personally concerned for your own safety? No, I think the team's really, really confident in our own procedures. We've all been vaccinated. So we've all had two doses of vaccine. Mm. Every day we go through practice sessions on donning and doffing PPE, so putting on and taking off the protective gear. Uh, and basically we have, have a lot of confidence in the procedures that we are helping um, implement in the system here. And finally, Wayne, what has to happen for Fiji to get this outbreak under control? Well, to a degree with infections like this, with, especially with this Delta variant, uh, the, the outbreak just has to run its course. And, uh, but there are a number of fantastic things that the Fiji health authorities have done. They uh, have had a really good testing program. They um, have had an amazing out. So over 54% of the eligible population have now received the first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine. And my public health colleague was telling me that just after one dose of this vaccine, it reduces the, the rate of symptomatic disease by 30% mm. and the rate of hospitalisation by 70%. So mm. we think it's really important that Fijians continue to follow the advice of their government They've got some fantastic experts in that, uh, in that group and they're also listening to advice from overseas. And uh, importantly, they need to go and get vaccinated. Well, Wayne, good luck to you and your team. We will be thinking about you, your colleagues and everyone in Fiji in the coming days. I know there are some challenges ahead. That is Dr Wayne okay. Morris. Kumutu, that is Q&A for this week. Thank you for watching. Thank you for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. Marae is up next. Hey te wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.